been mentioned already, as many of you already know, Jeremy is in Scotland. I sent him a text this morning, and he texted me back, and they were at a mountain with a really pretty stream going by, and I was like, man, you need to fly something like heaven. It looked beautiful. So uh, they told me to say hello, welcome, or glad you're here. They're sorry they're not. They miss you. Thank you. See you in two weeks. Uh, so don't bother. No, they didn't say don't bother them. That's not what he said. Uh, but they are having a good time. It's a much-deserved trip. It's Jeremy and Angie's 20th wedding anniversary. They have no kids for two weeks. So uh, I, we want to pray for the, the kids. I texted with Jay a little bit this week, and he was doing good. And I said, is there anything we can do for you? And he said, send money. So he is uh, a junior high boy, or a high school boy, high school boy. So typical, but I wouldn't, I would probably have done the same thing. So kids are doing good. Jeremy and Angie are doing good. Um, that's a report from them. If you got your Bibles, Exodus 34. That's where we're going to be. Exodus 34. If you'll go ahead and flip there. Now, as you're turning, I kind of want to just chart the path for where we're going over the next few weeks. My job was to preach all of Exodus 34, and as I studied this and I sat down with Will, I realized there's no way I can make it past verse 9 in an hour. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to study the first nine verses of Exodus 34, and the next week, Will's going to pick up, and he's going to take part two, which is actually, I'm part two of Jeremy's sermon last week, and, and Will will be part three of this same kind of series that goes together uh, with these two chapters. He's going to finish Exodus 34. Then Will already mentioned that J.R. Favela, uh, church planner in Amarillo, will be here the following week to preach and present his ministry, and we're really excited about our opportunity to potentially partner with him. Uh, we want you guys to meet him and see him. Um, we think it's an exciting opportunity for us. And then Jeremy will come back, and he will conclude the book of Exodus in chapter 40 in one week. We've, we've, we've told him, you've got to finish it in one week. So good news, after Lord knows how long, the book of Exodus is coming to an end. However, it's been good. It's been, uh, it's been a fun book to study. So this morning, Exodus 34 is where we're going to be. And before we can even read those nine verses and jump into that, we need to back up a little bit. And we need to set the stage for what's happened. Because this can't be ripped out of context, otherwise you miss it in its entirety. So if, if we remember last week what Jeremy preached on at the beginning of Exodus 33, the, the title of my chapter of Exodus 33 is the command to leave Sinai. God's had enough of Israel. He says, Israel, pack your bags, get out of here. I'm done. Go on to the land that I said I would give you. I'll send an angel before you and I'll get rid of all the bad guys and, and you guys go on, but I'm not going. And what does Moses do in response? Moses says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No way. If you're not going, we're not going. God, you got to go with us. you got to be in our presence. And Moses kind of calls back to God and reminds him of the covenant and says, God, if you're not with us in our midst, then what kind of people are we? And Jeremy made the point last week that what made Israel Israel was the presence of God in the midst of the people. And, and so Moses says, we're not leaving. And so God says, you know what, Moses, because of this, I've, I've found faith because of you reminding me of this, because of your call, because of your prayer, he said, I'll, I'll respond. I'll go with you. So Moses then, he says, he gets real gutsy. He says, God, you found favor with me. In Exodus chapter 33, um, verse 14, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In 15, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And then uh, he says, if, if you're not with us, then we don't want to go. You jump down to chapter 33, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for I have found favor in, you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Then Moses proclaims the most gutsy question in all of Scripture. You think up to this point, and Israel has said, God, deliver us, God, provide for us, God, heal us, and God does all these wonderful, wonderful things. But Moses takes it a step further, and what did he ask? Show me your glory. Show me, God, I want to see you. Now, up to this point, we know that Moses has ascended the mountain, and he's met with God, and God's given him all the instructions for the commandments in the temple and, and the sacrificial system and the priest, and, and we know that all has happened. But there's something unique about this question and about what Moses is crying for. Show me your glory. God, I want to behold you. And what does God respond? Well, yes and no. You can't see me, because if you see me, what happens? You will certainly die. But, he said, but, verse 22, verse 21, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God says, He's going to allow Moses to see his back. And in verse 19, he says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. So God here is doing something. He's saying, you can't see me in my entirety because if you do, you'll die. Instead, I'm going to put you in a rock and I'm, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. Okay, so, so we know that's what's about to happen. And that's what brings us to chapter 34. So Exodus 34 Verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read the whole thing. We're going to make a few observations. The first point and the third point will be short, and the second point we're going to, we're going to spend some time on. So, Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us, for your inheritance. Okay, if we had to summarize this passage into one sentence, one sentence, I, I would say that what God is communicating to us here is that the character of God is what redeems his people. What we're going to study this morning is we're going to study and look at the character of God. So Moses has made this gutsy request. God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'm going to do it. But then he gives instructions. So the first observation that we make this morning is God gives Moses instructions to how, on how to approach him. Now, this is consistent with what God has done so far throughout Exodus and through all the scriptures. You can't just walk up to God willy-nilly. 
If you're going to go speak with God, talk to God, you must do so according to his way and on his own terms, right? So God consistently says, Moses, you can come up, but if you're going to come up, you've got to do something first. What's the first thing that he tells Moses to do? Cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Why? Why does Moses need to go cut two tablets of stone? Remember earlier, Moses was up there. God had made two tablets of stone with the commandments, and, and we like to think tablet one is, is the first five commandments, and tablet two is the second five, and, and that's not the way it was. We know that tablet one had all the commandments, and that would have been Israel's copy, and tablet two would have had all the commandments, and that would have been God's copy, but God being God doesn't need two copies, so he gave them both to Moses, and Moses descends down the mountain, and when he descends down the mountain, what does he find? Israel there worshiping a golden calf, right? And what's his response when he sees this? He takes the two tablets and he throws them down out of anger. Wicked, stiff-necked people. That's what he calls Israel. That's what God identifies Israel. So God says to Moses, you can come up, but cut, you're cutting the two tablets this time. You cut two tablets, and I'm going to write on those tablets the words that were on the first ones. We're going to make another copy. We're going to renew the covenant. This isn't a new covenant. This is the same covenant renewed. Okay? So God is saying, cut two tablets. Now, here's what I find interesting about this moment. Moses has requested what? Show me your glory. I want to see you. But God in his instruction says, bring two tablets. And I think here's the point. The point is, is that when you encounter the glory of God, it never affects just you. Because when Moses goes to see God, what God is doing is he's giving him the commandments because what happens to Moses in this moment on this mountain is going to affect an entire nation. So, so I think we can take that and we can look at that from our perspective and say, have you encountered God? And if you have, does anybody else know? Because if nobody else knows, have you encountered God? So, so the first thing that we see is, is God says, Moses, cut these two tablets. Cut these out. Because what we're going to do here on this mountain, which you've asked for, which you've asked for, is not going to affect just you. It's going to affect everybody else. Bring these two tablets, which you broke. Moses, you broke these because Israel broke the covenant. Now, remember Israel in this moment, right? God had, we come to, I think it's Exodus 20, Exodus 19. God's on Mount Sinai, and he proclaims loud for all of Israel to hear the first Ten Commandments. And what does Israel do when they hear those Ten Commandments? They freak out. Whoa, 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 God, I, I can't take this. Don't speak to us, speak to Moses. So God says, okay. And Moses ascends the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days. And while he's up there receiving the rest of the instructions, Israel rebels. Israel breaks the covenant within 40 days that God had just spoke to them, verbally, audibly, for them to listen, for them to hear. And they're sitting at a base of a mountain, looking up, seeing a cloud with all of God's power, omniscience, omnipotence. And what do they do? They break the covenant. God, here in verse 1, is reminding Moses, I didn't break this covenant. I, what, what should God do? What is, what is the just punishment on what Israel deserves for rebelling against God? They deserve death. But God says, no, you broke it, and I'm going to renew it. Then in verse 2, he says, Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one's going to come with you. Let no one be seen. No flocks, herds, graze opposite of the mountain. So what's God saying here? Why is Moses the only one that's allowed to go? 
Because God chose him. God said, you can come up to me. And not only did he say, you can come up to me, he said, no one else can be on the mountain. Not, not only can no one else be on the mountain, no one can be opposite of the mountain. Why, why would God say that? Why would God say no one else can approach the mountain? Once again, we see the holiness of God. If you don't approach God on his terms, in his ways, the holiness of God will destroy you. Our God is an uncommon God who cannot be around common things. And if you approach God in your common ways, what happens is death. Now, I can't imagine what it was like for Moses. He's made this request, and God says, okay, you can come see me, but you've got to do these things. Now, when I was a little kid, I can remember my grandparents picking me up and taking me to Surprise Valley Ranch in New Mexico to go fishing. And I can remember the night before being giddy, just not wanting to sleep. I'd get all my stuff together. I would do it. By I mean my mother would get my stuff together. And the next morning, you wouldn't sleep at night. You'd be ready to go the next morning. You'd wake up before you should, all ready to go. Is anybody that way? Is anybody like before a big trip, you still can't sleep, you're so excited? Y'all are going to Alaska in a few weeks. I mean, come on now. I, I wouldn't be sleeping the night before that. I, can you imagine what Moses is like in this moment? I mean, we get giddy about little things. Moses is about to see the glory of God. I, I, I wouldn't sleep, man. You tell me to go chisel some stones out of the side of a mountain, I'm going to work real hard and real fast. This is going to be an exciting moment. He's got to be pumped. So he stays awake. He gets his stone tablets. He wakes up. He tells the people, back off. Nobody get on the mountain. Make sure there's no animals around. And early in the morning, he wakes up and he makes his hike. He makes his hike all the way up the mountain. And when he gets there, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. There's something really important here that I think we need to catch. There's some nuances in chapter 33, verse 19, and chapter 34, verse 5. That if we miss this, we're going to miss, I think, a really important part of this passage. I know I've said this over and over, but what is Moses' request? Show me your glory. Now, what does God say? I will proclaim my name. Chapter 33, verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What God is doing in this moment is he is equating proclaiming his name with seeing his glory. Proclaiming his name with seeing his glory. In other words, if you know God's name, you will behold his glory. If you know his name, you will behold his glory. Now, when it came to naming our children, we had a little bit of a difference of opinion. There's probably some people that fall in this category in this room. When it came to naming our kids, what I cared about was what's the meaning behind the name? Does this name have any meaning to it? My wife, on the other hand, she cared about how did this sound? How would this be perceived? When a teacher calls their name in class, what's the other kids going to treat them like because of what their name is? 
That's what my wife thought about. Is there, is there anybody in this room who falls in the I care about what the name means category? Is anybody show of hands? Like what matters? I don't care what it sounds like. I just care what it means. Is there anybody in the I care about it sounds? There, do we have anybody in that room? Yep. Uh, there's a few. Okay. So, so everybody has a difference of opinion. I'm glad to know we're not alone. Thank you. That's for the health of our marriage. Everybody has an opinion on what their name would be. Now, I care about what the name means. So uh, Walker, Walker, his name, my middle name is Walker. My mom's maiden name is Walker, and my mom doesn't have any siblings. So, so with my mom, the Walker line ends, and, and kind of guess I carry it as little as I can, and then we wanted to name our son Walker. So that's, that's Walker's name. That's the meaning. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean something. I really wanted to name one of our kids Ezekiel. Because in Hebrew, the name Zeke has to do with strength, and El has to do with God. So God's strengthen is what Ezekiel means. Well done. Good job. Y'all did it. We got to name our dog Zeke. But here's the thing. With some people, when you, name your, when you have a name for your child, you, you want to name your kid this and, because the name matters, and you want your kid to assume that responsibility, right? You want, you want your child to take on that characteristic. We didn't name our son John Wayne because we didn't want him to be like John Wayne when he grew up. Yes, John Wayne is a great hero in a lot of movies, but there's a lot of characteristics that we don't want our kid to take on. But when you say the name John Wayne, everybody in here, that means something. You know who John Wayne is. It's more than just a name. So, so when God says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, that's not just saying, Matt. No, when you hear the name of God, you get the picture of the person. That's what contains the weight of the glory of God is his name. Because his name encompasses he and his entirety. So what we're going to do for the next little bit is we're going to think about the name of God. Because in the name of God, you behold the glory of God. And last week, Jeremy asked the question, do you desire the glory of God? How do we get the glory of God today? We behold him. We behold his name. We know him. So we're going to spend a few minutes, and we're going to look at the name of God. Okay? First, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Now, who is this God? He is merciful. In Hebrew, it's the word rahum. You've got to add that real guttural in there. It's rahum. It carries with it the idea of compassion or softness or gentleness. Psalms 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is like a good father who loves his children. In Exodus 2, we think about Israel. What's Israel doing? They're crying because they're enslaved. And what does God do? God, as a good father, hears their cry, and he responds. Psalm 78, 38 says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. You think about Israel after the Exodus, and what does Israel continually do? Murmur, complain, grumble, rebel, lose faith. Yet God atones for their iniquity and does not destroy them. He's compassionate. Friends, where have you experienced the compassionate mercies of God? Why do you today need to remember that he is merciful, that he is a good and loving father 
who hears and responds to the cries of his children. Our God is a merciful God, and he's gracious. So he's rachum, and then he's chanum. So in Hebrew, this, this wording has, a, has some poetry to it. Now, the word grace we often identify as unmerited favor. What's unmerited favor? We think about the prodigal son. What, who was the prodigal son? What did he do? He said, Dad, give me any of my inheritance because I'm done with you. I'm going to go blow it. I'm going to go live my life my way. So, so the prodigal son takes what his dad had earned. He said, this is my inheritance. He takes it, and he goes, and he blows it, and he's a fool. And then he spends all his time uh, partying, playing, wasting his money, ends up eating pig slop as he's with the servants, and finally says, you know what? I've had enough of this. Maybe, just maybe, I can go to my dad, and he will let me back into the family to be a servant. And then when he gets there, what does the dad do? The dad throws a party. What did the son deserve? To be ostracized. But what did the son get? Welcome back into the family of God. What did Israel deserve? In all of Exodus, what did Israel deserve? Not a dang thing. But what does Israel get? They get a covenant relationship with Yahweh, with the Most High God. Where have you experienced the grace of God? Why do you need to remember today that he is compassionate and that he is graceful? Third, he's, he's slow to anger. Now, our kids are two, four, and six, and I love them. Playing with my kids is the most fun part of my day every day of the week. I love my kids. But my kids are two, four, and six. So you can probably imagine that we have some tense moments. And there's times when mom and dad would like a breather, and yet not just one comes in, but two come in, and three come in, and they all want something different, and they're all speaking to you at the same time. Any moms and dads can relate to that? And, and what is your response in that moment? Just go away. I get angry. Leave me alone. God's not like that. He's slow to anger. He's gracious and merciful. When I think about Israel in the desert, having just walked through the Red Sea that's been parted, and they sing a song, and in the next chapter, what do they do? I want to go back. I've had enough. They grumble, and they complain, and they whine, and they argue. And I know that if I was dad, somebody's getting a whipping. I have had enough. Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, he looks back on the Exodus. In verse 16, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21 of Nehemiah 9. He says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Sounds familiar. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way, did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. 
Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. What did Israel deserve in the midst of all that? A stiff-necked people who would give the glory that God deserved for leading them out of Egypt to a false idol that they made with their hands. What did they deserve? And yet he's slow to anger. He's merciful and he's gracious. Next, we see that he's abounding in steadfast love. The word abounding here in Hebrew is the Hebrew word rav, and it means that it has no end. You can't count it. It continues to multiply. It abounds. It grows. You can't reach the ends of it. And it's tied here to the word steadfast love. And in Hebrew, that's the word hesed. Now, hesed, we don't have a good English word to translate it. It, 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 it contains so many different aspects and avenues that, that we can't really in English describe it as it's meant. The best we can do is we can look at it and we can know that hesed, steadfast love, exists in a covenant relationship. That it's found best in something like a marriage. And it describes love and it describes loyalty and it describes faithfulness and goodness. So what God is describing here is he is describing an abounding love one that knows no ends, one that you can never reach the end of. It lasts forever. forever. It's loyal. It's faithful. It's good. His love is trustworthy. It's constant and it's firm. It abounds. It knows no end, no measure, and no degree. So we see that his love is abounding and we see that it's faithful, that it lasts. It never parts. What, what had Israel just done? Israel had just not been faithful to the covenant. And what does God continue to do? Remain faithful to his people. So his love is abounding and it's faithful. And then the next phrase we see is he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. Now in our Sunday school we've been talking about the idea of what it means as biblical men to be workers and keepers. Which we find God give his instruction to Adam in Genesis 2 to work and to keep the garden. And the idea of keeping here carries the same connotations as it does in Genesis 2. Keeping means protecting, preserving, watching over it. So, so previously, in being abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it's almost like you get this idea of God in the midst of a relationship. And then in keeping, you almost have the idea of God above the relationship, protecting it, preserving it, protecting it from things that come in from the outside. He keeps it for forever. He, pre he preserves it. So we have a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps that love. And then finally, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The word forgive there means the idea of carrying away, of separating, of lifting, of carrying. And then God uses three words, iniquity and transgression and sin. What's the difference? In those three words? Nothing. What, what he uses, what he, when he uses this re repeating, what he's showing is in its entirety. The sin that God forgives, he forgives all of it. There's no guilt. There's no shame left behind. God's forgiveness is entire. It's all-consuming. And it's not that he just forgives, but he removes it. As far as the east is from the west, it's separated. 
There's no guilt. There's no shame. It's been moved. It's been carried. It's been lifted away. Warren Wearsby, he has a commentary on this, and he, and he summarizes this passage, and I think this is a helpful way. He said, so this is the God who stood near Moses on the mountain, the compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving Lord. This is the God who passed by in glory, and this is the God whom the Israelites worshiped. It's a good thing, too, because no other God could have saved them. Only the compassionate and gracious Lord could rescue people like them. The Israelites needed a compassionate God. They needed someone to hear their cry of distress when they were groaning under their bondage to Pharaoh or when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And God did hear them. He had compassion on them. He looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The Israelites needed a gracious God who would treat them better than they deserved. And this is how God treated them all through their journey. With unmerited favor, he rescued them from slavery. He loaded them with treasure. He blessed them with his law. And what had Israel done to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. They were saved by grace. The Israelites also needed a patient God. They were a bunch of malcontents, always grumbling and complaining. So they needed a God who was slow to anger, who would not give up on them, even when they were hard to love. And speaking of love, they needed a loving God, a God who was faithful to his covenant. And God was faithful. The reason he rescued them from slavery was because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses said it best after the people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. He praised God saying, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. And the Israelites needed a forgiving God. Remember our context. Only days before the Israelites had worshipped the golden calf, they were guilty of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet Moses had prayed for them. He had begged God, please forgive their sin. And God answered his prayers because he's a forgiving God. So when God met Moses on the mountain, he revealed himself as the God of the Exodus, the God who saved Israel for his glory. He proclaimed in word what he had already demonstrated in deed, that he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. This is the God who saved Israel. He's the only God who could have done it. No other God could have saved a people like them. Do you know him? Do you know God to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping love and forgiving? Do you know him? Have you encountered that God? Because what do you deserve? How often are we like Israel, grumbling, complaining, going, God, why won't you give me my way? Why won't you provide in this way? Why do I have to suffer this? Why am I just like Israel? But here's the thing. That's not all of God's name. There's one more attribute. Part B of verse 7. He's a forgiving God, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's a just God. Now, this is where we tend to have an issue. Because we like to, it's heard, it's argued, that when we look at the Old Testament, we find a God of wrath. We see him as one who executes justice and drives people out of their land and kills people and then in the New Testament, we find Jesus, who's a God of love, and he balances it. He's the yin to the yang, right? It's, that's what it is often perceived. 
But I don't think we need to really leave Exodus 34 to find that God is actually a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace. We see that that's not true at all. But how then does God's justice and God's love work? How can those two things coexist? Well, we know that God is a holy God and that you can't approach God on his terms because otherwise what happens? Death. So God's holy justice requires that sin be punished. Because he is holy and perfect, he cannot allow sin into his presence. That's why he created this whole sacrificial system for Israel. Because he was good and loving. He said, instead of you dying, I'll allow a lamb to die in your place. So ancient Israel slaughtered lambs on their behalf. And here's the thing. God never changed his system. He just found a better lamb. You see, Jesus took on mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. He took on keeping steadfast love, and he took on forgiving, forgiveness. He took that all on. He was the personification of every word that we've just meditated on. And God executed his justice when he executed his son. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes this argument. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and were justified by his grace as a gift. Why are people justified? It's that gracious characteristic of God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sins. Verse 26 It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The crucifixion satisfies God's justice. Jesus paid the debt that we owed because of our sin. But this was also an act of mercy and grace because anyone who trusts in Jesus is fully forgiven. We do not have to die for our sins. Jesus has already suffered the punishment that we deserve. Because Jesus has done this, God has only grace and mercy for us. And he can give it to us without denying any of his perfections or doing violence to his character. Jesus satisfied God's claims of justice. Now everyone who believes in him knows God to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving all kinds of sin. So the question remains, do you know him? Do you know his mercy and do you know his grace? That's found in Jesus. Have you encountered the glorious God who by his nature redeems people? What redeemed the people of Israel? It was the nature of God. It was his character. What redeems God's people today? What redeems a wicked, stiff-necked people who continually walk away, who don't devote their heart, soul, and mind to him? It's his merciful and gracious character. It's not by works, it's by him. So God gives Moses instructions on how you can approach him, on how he was to be approached, and Moses does it. And when he gets there, God God equates seeing him with hearing and knowing his name. Church, if you want to know and to see the glory of God, you must know the name of God. When you say Jesus... 
What does that name mean? When you say God or the Lord, is there anything behind that? Or is it just saying a name? So God proclaims his name, and when he proclaims his name, what he does is he reveals his glory. And then in verse 8, Moses responds. Moses responds. And what does he do? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. So this is our final point, is Moses' response. God declares his name. Moses now has seen the glory of God, and he can only do one thing. He worships. He worships. When you encounter God in his entirety, you can't help but respond in worship. We see Moses here, but think about Isaiah. When Isaiah beholds God, what does Isaiah do? What does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. What he's doing in that moment is he's falling and he's proclaiming God, God, you are much greater than anything I could have ever imagined. Woe is me. He's worshiping God. Think about the people who fell at the feet of Jesus when they recognized him for who he was. I, I think about the woman who had, had the bleeding issue and Jesus was going to heal the, the centurion's daughter. And on all she said, if I could just touch his garment. And she touches it and Jesus feels his power leave him and he stops the whole procession and says, who was that? She worshiped Jesus by knowing that if she could just touch him, she would be healed. When you see Jesus, when you encounter the glory of God, you can't help but worship. But Moses doesn't stop there. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Now think how gutsy Moses is for a minute. Like this dude's just asked to see God's glory, and God says, okay, I'll do it. And he doesn't stop. Like he just keeps asking. Like I just, that takes, that takes some, some, some serious, you know, guts to, to be able to ask that. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Now, if you remember back in Exodus 33, do you remember where Moses went to meet God? Do you remember where the tent was? The tent was outside of the camp. And what's Moses requesting now? Come back. Come be in our midst. Come be in our midst, because that way when people look at us, when they look into the nation of Israel, what they see is they see God. They see a glorious, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love, faithful, forgiving, just God. When they look into the camp because he's in their midst. When people look at you, what do they see? Because when you claim Jesus as yours, as your Lord, what God does is he gives you his spirit who resides in you, in, in you, in you. You reflect the character and the nature of God. Paul tells us he's given us a new nature. So when people look at you, who do they see? The, does, does the glory of God exist within you? Or is it outside the camp? Is it something that you just go visit on Sunday mornings? Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be among God's people here. Or is the glory of God something that is dwelling in you, that is growing in you, that when people look at you, you shine, you radiate? Will's going to teach next week on the end of Exodus 34, and Moses comes down the mountain, and what's on his face? What happens to him? Shiny. It terrifies the people. The people say, no, put a veil over. We don't want to look at you. We can't, 
We can't be with that. There's something about you that's different. Moses says, be in our midst, not outside the camp. Be in the middle of us. So church, when people see you, what do they see? Do they see a name? Or do they behold the glory of God? Moses says, be in our midst, for we are a stiff-necked people. It's like he's going, God, I know what's going to happen as soon as we finish this conversation. I know what's going to happen between here and the promised land. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing. We're a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Now, how can God dwell in the people's midst? This is an imperfect people. The only way he can do it is to be forgiven, to pardon them, to give them grace, to show them mercy, and take us for your inheritance. Now, I find that kind of funny. Moses is saying, God, I got a great deal for you, all right? Take us to be your children. We'll be your inheritance. And what you get is stiff-necked, sinful people. All yours for the taking, right? That's the kind of people y'all want as your kids, right? You, you want the stiff-necked kids, the ones who were rebellious and wicked. I want those guys to be my inheritance. I want to work my whole life so that I can give my inheritance to that group of people. That's, that's what Moses is offering God. Heck of a deal, right? Whew. It is a good thing he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, He keeps steadfast love and he is forgiving because there is no other way that this would work for Israel. What makes Israel God's people? Last week, Jeremy showed us that what makes Israel unique is it's the presence of God in them. And what we see in this passage is the only reason God's presence is in the midst of them is because of his character. We know it has nothing to do with who Israel is. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. What does Israel deserve? Nothing. But what does Israel get? Everything. They get God in their midst. They get to be God's people with God's presence in them. And they're headed to God's place in God's land. But what about us? When we study the Bible, it's important that we understand passages in their context. We don't want to just look at it and all of a sudden start making applications. We need to understand what this meant to those people. And I think, I hope we've done that. But we can't stop there. We do have to ask, what about us? Well, Romans chapter 8. Just go ahead and flip there with me real quick. In Romans chapter 8, there's a pretty incredible promise in verse 15. And we'll back up to verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what does this have to do with us? The beauty of what Jesus does is when you say, Jesus, I am a stiff-necked person. I am wicked. I'm going to be the one who continues to run towards sin and not run towards you. And I need you to save me. Jesus, because of his character, he redeems that type of person. Those in humility approach him and say, save me. He says, of course. Of course I'll save you. And his blood is shed so yours doesn't have to be. And then what happens to you? He gives you his spirit. Paul says he gives you his spirit to be led and you become what? Sons and daughters of God. He is now your father. You have the spirit by whom you can cry, Abba, Father. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. He's the dad that you always wish you had. He's the dad that you always wanted to be but never were. He's a good father. And because you have the Spirit, you can run to Him. And you can be led by Him. And not only that, you get to be heirs. Jesus is now your brother. You get what He gets. You are children of God when Jesus is Lord. So you can cry, Abba, because you've been adopted into His family by the blood. Second, you can walk forward in faith, not fear. Verse 15, he gave you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. You can have faith walking forward. You don't have to be afraid because he's your father and he is God. And third, you can know what awaits you. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How did Moses experience the glory of God? Hidden in a cleft of a rock. He got to see the backside of it. What happens to the children of God? They're glorified with him. They see it in its entirety. They will behold, we will behold him face to face. There will be no partial glory of God that we see. We see the entire glory of God. Church, that doesn't get you excited. If that doesn't call you into faith, into repentance, I don't know what will. So, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? This leaves us with a couple questions. To those in the room who don't claim Jesus as Lord, I want to call you to repentance. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be rebellious. Because you will encounter a just God. He cannot let sin go unpunished. The question is, who's going to pay the punishment for your sin? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, repent today. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to do anything cool. You just say, Jesus, save me, because I can't. If you want to talk more about that afterwards, I'll help you. Will will help you. We'll connect you with anybody you want to talk to to help you. Either Jesus will bear God's wrath or you will. There's no in-between. 
What about to those who claim to be the people of God? To those of you in this room who say, no, Jesus is my Lord. The call for you is don't be stiff-necked. Quit being rebellious. Quit pursuing sin. The glory of God is the greatest call in all of Scripture. That's what awaits you. Quit pursuing other things of this world because they will fail. The inheritance that you're working so hard to give your children isn't going to last forever. Pursue the things that last. The glory of God is what that is. When you hear the name Jesus, when you hear the name Yahweh or God or Lord, what does that mean to you? Is it a name or is it the glorious character of God that redeems his people? His name is glorious. You want to see his glory? Know his name. Know his character. Know what he's like. Look for it in others. Look for it in the world because he's there. His fingerprints are able to be seen throughout. Do you know the name? Church, God's glory is what redeems us. It's his glorious character, and it has nothing to do with us. What we're going to do now is we're going to turn to the time of observing the Lord's Supper. We've talked about the justice of God and how our sin will be paid for. And Jesus, what he did was he said, I will take your punishment. I will bear the wrath of God on your behalf. So, so Will's going to come lead us in a minute for this, and I'm going to ask the music team, as Paul, if you come on up. Uh, as, as they do that, as they get ready to come up, I want to remind you that this body and this blood was broken for you. And if Jesus is not your Lord, then this is not for you. 1 Corinthians warns us not to take it. But if Jesus is your Lord, then you take this, and you take this celebrating, you take this repenting, you take this reflecting on that glorious character of God that redeems you. So, Will's going to come up. I, I want to give you a moment. I want to give you a moment as he comes up here, and as the deacons come up to administrate this, I'm going to give you a moment to stop, to stop and think about his glorious character, to ask for him in repentance and faith to provide the grace that you need to continue to press on. If you'll do that for the next couple minutes, then Will will lead us through this.